This is AA Beyond Belief, the podcast, episode 98. A few months ago, I read a poem that was posted on our Facebook group, written by Robert B. from Madison, Wisconsin. In his post, Robert mentioned that at the encouragement of his sponsor, he began to write poetry, which he's been doing daily since he's been sober. Since that time, he's amassed some 4,000 poems. Intrigued, I contacted him to ask if he would like to post his poetry at AA Beyond Belief. That interaction resulted in this podcast. Robert is fascinating. He's a scientist, an atheist who practices meditation and follows the Eightfold Path. He's passionate about his art and believes that creativity is essential to his recovery. I began the podcast by asking Robert to introduce himself through his story, and the conversation that followed covered such topics as grief, atheism, spirituality, poetry, music, science, and more. Here's Robert. I didn't start drinking every day until I was uh, about 40. At that point, I was in uh, a relationship that was ending, and it was also after uh, a marriage that ended. And I, I began to use alcohol to, to really help me manage my sort of growing anxiety and, and depression, even though I knew that alcohol was a depressant. Alcohol helped me function for a while, but then I had to drink more and more, and I had enough consequences professionally and then personally that I saw my physician, I saw a psychiatrist, I saw a counselor, and I went on anxiety medications and antidepressants, and I stopped drinking. And... As best as I can recollect, I don't think that anyone recommended AA to me. And honestly, given my sort of fierce atheism at the time, I wouldn't have been receptive to it. But I stopped drinking alcohol, and I abstained from alcohol for about seven years. And, you know, and it was certainly true for me that... I wasn't harming myself and harming others and some of the damage that I caused. You know, it was being repaired. But that whole time that I was abstinent, I I absolutely knew that I would eventually drink alcohol again because that was a part of my identity. Uh, I couldn't imagine living without drinking alcohol, even as a as an image of, of who I thought I was. So it. After about seven years, I was then uh, in a new relationship, uh, newly married, just built a house. Professionally, I was at the top of my game. I had rebuilt a lot of uh, relationships, especially with my son, who had really been around my uh, first bottom and uh, probably bore the brunt of that. And so I talked with my wife and decided that, you know, having a glass of wine at dinner would be an okay thing to do. And, uh, you know, and, and a pattern for me is, has been deception and lying and hiding. And so 
she knew I didn't drink when we first got together and she thought it was because of the medications I was on. And that, you know, that was partially true. Uh, and so she didn't know the extent of my bottom and I began to drink again and just like a glass once and then nothing for two weeks and then a glass out for dinner again. And I really felt like I've got this. And within, within a month, I was really beginning to drink daily. And within six months, I was getting, was getting drunk. And within a year, I was blackout drinking. And my wife, uh, first encouraged me to cut back, then demanded I stop. And I just became more and more, uh, secretive about, uh, drinking alcohol. And I found myself Within about two years of starting to drink alcohol again, uh, I couldn't stop. And I, I think that's something that unless you've been there, unless, you know, you've, you've gone through that progression of alcohol abuse to alcohol dependency, it's hard to understand. But I was dumbfounded because I had stopped once before and now I couldn't stop. And Consequences got worse, progressively worse. And I, uh, you know, I was suicidal because I just was filled with so much shame about the harm I was causing. And it, it hit a, a turning point for me where I had written a suicide note and unexpectedly my wife had worked from home and, uh, she, she found me coming in the door at, you know, 8.30 in the morning already drunk. And at that point, you know, things, things hit the fan. I went to my first AA meeting two days later and really going with the intention and hope of, uh, salvaging my, uh, my marriage. And I've been sober ever since. Uh, that was in the spring of 2007. And kind of like you were saying about, you know, your 30 years, it, it dumbfounds me, uh, sometimes. Because some days it feels like I've always been this way, and other days it feels like it's it's brand new. And I think where the uh, poetry first emerged is I I did not have sort of that euphoric pink cloud of being newly sober. It was a real struggle. I had a lot of cravings. Consequences seemed like they were just crashing down around my head every day, and I. I was just, I was having so much difficulty being with my awareness, but I was in that place of just sheer willpower that I'm not going to drink alcohol today, no matter what. And I talked with my, my sponsor and he knew that I liked to read poetry. I liked to journal and he suggested I try writing some poetry about, you know, where I was and I've, uh, I've written a poem pretty much daily. Uh, I tend to write early in the morning after I meditate and I give myself 15 minutes to write and then I post it on Facebook. And, and I think what, what sharing it did for me is it, it kept me honest, uh, kept me from, uh, sort of tapping into my ego that likes to show off and impress. And I found that I could write just little short snippets about my awareness and about this present moment. And 
over time, it just it became a ritual. Uh, but I think, uh, and I've been thinking a lot in anticipation of, of talking with you, I think a big thing that it did for me and continues to do for me is it lets me be with me uh, wherever I'm at that day. Uh, and kind of like the uh, daily reflection from uh, yesterday's Beyond Belief, it's, you know, I'm adding to my story every day. Uh, so it's it's helped me move past the shame of the past, even though some of the poems reflect past uh they they end up coming back to this this present moment in my life. What do you think it is about poetry as opposed to like writing an essay or a journal of of specifics that allows you to communicate your feelings more effectively? Um, you know, I I think it uses a different part of my brain. You know, professionally I do a, a lot of writing of scientific reports and and grants and even some you know, science writing for the public. And I've done a lot of journaling. And I think that writing poetry, especially after I meditate, taps into a, a different part of my brain. And it's a part of my brain that is just trying to be aware. I'm not trying to explain anything. I'm not trying to justify anything or rationalize anything or or convince you of anything. And And I think by putting it into verse, even though I don't think I've ever written a poem that rhymed, which is what I thought all poetry had to do at first. <laughs> uh, but by by putting it in verse form, um, it um, I, I guess I see it more as as a moment rather than a whole story. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, it's really a powerful way of connecting with another person, um, communicating the, the human experience in a way that a story might not. Because, you know, I can just relate to the, the feelings and, and maybe I might, I might have something else going on with me than, than you did at the time that you wrote it, but still can relate to whatever feeling um, is being expressed in, in that poem. Well, and, and I think feeling is, you know, is uh, another thing that sets it apart. Uh, you know, when I write uh, professionally, I'm, I'm writing to add to a body of knowledge. And I'm not seeking to do that with, with poetry. I'm just trying to, as best I can, describe this feeling, this observation at this point in time, and also accepting that I don't have adequate words for it, you know, so... I, I think I let myself reach a little more. And I would say that after about three years sober and three years of writing, I, I feel like I, I began to find a voice, uh, and a, a style that was, was really mine. At, at first I wrote sort of haiku like poetry and I was even pretty rigid about having Three lines that were things I observed in nature and two lines that described my feeling about it. And, and I, I stuck with that to the point of realizing I'm being rigid. And at that point, I think my poems became a little more narrative and I didn't, I didn't, uh, constrain myself to any particular length. And I think the other thing that happened uh, simultaneously was uh, during that time, people around me were also dying. And so it let me explore, you know, 
what dying meant to me and what having people that I love and care about die meant to be what being alive meant. Uh, I, you know, I think writing poetry at that time was, was real essential to, to be with grief. Uh, because I, you know, I had some of the strongest emotions I've ever had in my life and I could write them, I could share it and, and I could let them go. I think that's the other thing of posting it or, you know, I don't think it has to be posted on Facebook, uh, but somehow shared with other people and even shared somewhat anonymously with people. It became a way for me to, to let go because that, you know, as, as a skeptic, as an agnostic, the whole idea of let go and let God, well, that wasn't working for me. Uh, but I still needed to let go of things that I couldn't change or couldn't change now. And I think posting these was a way to do that. Yeah. You know, when I was drinking, I don't think I was consciously aware that I was drinking with the intent to subdue feelings or not deal with reality or feelings. But looking back, I can see that I did use alcohol as a way to medicate and suppress feelings that I just couldn't handle, and grief being one of those. Yeah. So, you know, in recovery, we need to, I guess, learn how to experience these emotions, you know, mm -hmm. and grief in particular. Um, which I've had to go through in sobriety, um, I found that it was something that I initially tried to control right, and found I couldn't. And it was like um, I had to be comfortable. I guess I'm not, I don't know if it's comfortable is the right word, but I had to accept that this is something I can't control and I just have to ride it. And I'm going to have a lot of ups and downs and I'm going to be crazy. Yeah, Absolutely. And nothing I learned in AA was able to prepare me for that. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and I think the other thing about many of those emotions uh, when I was newly sober, because like you, uh, alcohol had helped just dampen an emotions initially. And then I began to use alcohol to just completely escape. And so then newly sober and when I can't use alcohol to escape, and I had to find another way to to be with those emotions. There was there was a time where you know I was so uneasy and unclear about how to be with emotions that it was like, well, how do people expect me to be? And and especially with grieving, it's like I kept trying to be, I kept trying to grieve the way I thought people thought I should grieve, and by sort of using meditation, using awareness, using writing poetry, I could begin to describe just how I was and stop and stop trying to to do this in a way that I thought other people thought I should. Because one of the things that is sort of a theme that emerges sort of pretty frequently is this idea of the mask that I wear. Uh and you know and and who am I, my identity. And for a long time, I focused on just being whoever you or who I was around thought I needed to be. And I, there was a part of me that knew that wasn't going to work for me in recovery. 
uh, that I had to be honest with myself, but it was scary. And, and I think poetry helps me be honest with myself. And it must be interesting for you as, as you progress through time. Do you ever go back and read some of your previous work and, and see how you came through a particular period? Or is that something you just, do you just prefer just to stay in whatever moment that you're in? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. And if you'd asked me two months ago, I would have said I, I don't go back, uh, because I, I, you know, I like to think of myself as Buddha boy sometimes. <laughs> and, uh, and so the, you know, staying present for me, being present and fully present is what being sober means. And so I feel like I was, I resisted that because it would take me out of the present moment. And, and I think when, uh, uh, you and I first started connecting, I, I began to, to go back more. And, and I also began to go back more for my, uh, for my family, for my friends. Uh, when, you know, when my dad died about, uh, eight years ago. And when he died, I, I just kept having this sense of, I didn't really know who he was. I didn't know why he was the way he was. I had a lot of unanswered questions about him because there were, you know, there were, there were parts of him that were, were hurtful. And I, I saw him die without ever, you know, really overtly expressing any regret. I think he felt deep regret, but that was always a question that lingered. And as my son and I amended our relationship, I I just felt like I really don't want him to be in that position at some point when I die. And these poems for, you know, the last 11 years are one of the best representations of who I've been and who I am and who I try to be. And so I, uh, I've slowly been going back and, uh, for each one, then, uh, annotating a little bit of it, uh, just to explain, you know, where I was at the time, you know, trying to pull out any, any hidden meetings. And so then my, my intention is that that will be, you know, a collection of those will be something for him, for my, for my stepdaughter, for, you know, any of my friends and family that, that are interested. And I think that's why I could, you know, w- when you ask about early, that's why I could begin to see a pattern that, you know, for a few years, I hold on to a pretty rigid structure, uh, a whole lot like I hold on to a really rigid structure. Uh, you know, I went to, Two meetings a day, a morning meeting and an evening meeting daily my, my first year. I did a daily reflection. I wrote a gratitude list. I didn't go to this place because it was too much of a trigger. I didn't go to that place. You know, early sobriety, I, I had a pretty rigid structure and, and it was useful. Yeah. But it's, you know, at some point it was confining. I think kind of like, at some point that three lines and two lines became confining. So it's, you know, it's very similar to <laughs> how I progressed in recovery. That's really interesting. You know, that, that really makes sense too. I, I think that a lot of us are pretty 
rigid about our program when we first come in. And a lot of us kind of expect or want or need, I think, um, just tell me what to do. You know, I just right. do the, if, I, I, I remember for me, I thought, Oh, you got a book. Just give me the damn book. I'll yep. figure this out. <laughs> you know? Um, and then I got the book. I said, Hmm, well, I'm not yeah. so sure about this, <laughs> but, um, but yeah. And I, and maybe it's because, um, you know, that our lives are so out of control that, you know, that it's, it, it, it's like we need some, we need some measure of control for a little while. But then as you say, as, as we do experience our recovery, it does become a bit confining. And then we start, I think, branching out a little bit and into the world. It's, it's, it's interesting that you can see the parallels with your poetry yeah. and your recovery like that. Well, and, you know, and one of the other things that I was rigid about, and I think it's, you know, germane to what AA Beyond Belief does is at first I, you know, I was just tolerating AA meetings. Uh, I was desperate and that's part of why I tolerated, but I knew that my belief was, was different. And, and one of the things that, and again, I think poetry helped pull it out was I began to slowly realize that my belief was a negative. It was a lack of belief. And so if somebody was talking about a higher power, the only thing that I could talk about is what I didn't believe in. <laughs> yeah. But you're a scientist though. Right. And 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 I think, you know, and that rigid structure that that I talked about, part of that was what I observe as a scientist and what I feel inside. That I think helped me build some bridges between science and and spirituality and now that's interesting yeah that's really interesting and and i didn't intend to build that bridge i was completely comfortable in my in my dogmatic belief <laughs> right well you know i'm i've been all over the map with the whole concept of spirituality i um i think i'm probably now at the point where I, I, I'm not really overly dogmatic about it one way or the other. I just see it as a form of language, just like poetry, isn't it? Right. Mm-hmm. Spiritual. It's a way of communicating. It's a way of communicating the human experience. Right. And it doesn't mean it has to be supernatural. It just means that it's, it's poetry. It's right. metaphor. It's, it's a, it's a way of expressing our feelings, I guess. Well, and, and I found that, you know, that last, that last couplet about, sort of being with my feelings, the things that would show up often would become love and hope. And at some point, it's like, well, I think maybe that's what I believe in. I think maybe I believe in love and hope. And sometimes I find that in nature. Sometimes I find it in my relationships. Sometimes I find it with my dogs, which I'm grateful they've settled again. <laughs> uh, but you know, when, when I started to look at it, it's like, you know, maybe it's sufficient for me that I just tap into being loved and loving and, and that, that, that works. And I don't know if I could have gotten there without the way I was writing poetry. I mean, maybe, but I know that was the vehicle for me. And it came out of that first seeming disconnect of, I'm a scientist. And then it was like, I'm a scientist that writes poetry. And then it became, I'm a scientist and I'm a poet. <laughs> right. And, and the two, and the two go together, don't they? Yeah, they do. Yeah, absolutely. 
Because you know, science is beautiful. You know, nature is. You know, mm-hmm. when when you what, what I what I when I was coming to understand that I'm an atheist, um, I was reading Richard Dawkins, and I was becoming interested in science and uh, and astronomy and all of this. And I just thought this is really beautiful. Right. This is really an amazing story of how life has evolved and how enormous the universe is, and that we have a pretty good understanding of it. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. And yeah. it's it's more amazing to me than any story that any religion has ever concocted. And that I'm part of it, that, you know, we're all connected to nature, that we're all connected to the universe, that we're all made up of stardust. I think that's just amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and so that that in a way is my spirituality, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, that's yeah. how I feel connected to the world. Yeah. And and I know, uh, you know, water, uh, especially lakes and ponds and streams, uh, I, I see those and experience those as, uh, spiritual reservoirs. I mean, I study them. I know about nutri- nutrient dynamics. I, you know, I know about, uh, uh, trophic cascades and I can identify a lot of the organisms that are there. But even if I'm out in the field doing scientific sampling, I sink into a place where it's like, wow, this is so damn amazing. <laughs> yeah. And, and I get to try to learn about it. Uh, and, and one of the experiences that I've had is, you know, especially during periods of grief or when I'm going through some big transition that, you know, incites a lot of fear. I, uh, I'm almost drawn to water. I mean, I find myself sitting by a little stream nearby or a little pond and it's, I have this sensation that I no longer am separate from the pond or the stream. I just become part of the pond or stream. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that's not something that I could articulate scientifically, but it's something that I can describe poetically. And, and I think that's where there's some synergy involved. Uh, but, but water, especially ponds and streams are, are just such a spiritual place for me. It's a place that I feel part of rather than separate from. And I can just see this connection that it's like, man, this is just stunning. Yeah. I don't get out in nature very much anymore. I'm a real city character, it seems, and have been for quite some time, but. Um, I grew up in the country and in Kansas and used to follow little creeks and streams and find these amazing little spots where, you know, water would congregate and into a little waterfall or something. And I've always been kind of attracted to more, more rivers, I guess, being a mm-hmm. Midwesterner, you know, yeah. uh, because I guess the sense of where they go and, and the, the, the calming nature of watching the water, you know, go by. But, yeah. um, yeah, I'm not I'm not as in touch with nature as I as I used to be, uh, simply because of where my life is now, I mm-hmm. guess, and what I do. But and and it seems like when my wife and I travel, it's always to a city someplace. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I never heard. Uh, what kind of um, science do you practice again? What? So uh, limnology. Okay, uh, and see, I had to look that up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I do more of the ecological part of it. Uh, uh-huh. So I study a lot of relationships uh, of 
animals to uh, to the different bodies of water and animals to each other. Uh, for uh, probably 30 years, I've always in one form or another studied uh, dragonflies oh. and both the, the naiads that uh, the juvenile stages that live in the water and the adults flying around. And, you know, and again, especially with the adults flying, I mean, when I catch sort of those facets on their wings uh, when they're flying and they turn and the sun hits them just right, it's like they, they stop being a, uh, a predacious dragonfly and they become just something amazing at, that I, I look at and it's like, Oh my God, these things have been around since dinosaurs and here they are. And I'm, I'm watching them and I get to watch them. It's, it's, it's nice that we can appreciate this kind of thing. Um, you know, one thing I did kind of notice when I was very first getting sober is that as I, it's, I don't know when it happened, but I kind of remember this drive. I was maybe sober six months or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like all of a sudden I looked out at the pastures as I was driving down the road and I could see all the flowers and the grass and everything seemed green and blue. And it's like, it's like I went from a black and white movie to color. And yeah. it, <laughs> I almost wonder, what was I was I just ignoring what was going on around me those years when I was drinking, or was it maybe my little pink cloud that I was experiencing at the time? But I I actually remember having a bit of a shift in my perception a little bit um, mm-hmm. when I was first getting sober. Yeah, and and I would say that that was true for me. It it began to emerge at about six months sober, and and it was almost like. You know, over over a more protracted time, but sitting in the ophthalmologist chair and and they're going through and they're giving you these, you know, these new new lenses to try to adjust your prescription. And I and I start to see detail that I just couldn't see before. And and for me, I I think when I was drinking, especially when I was was drinking during periods of, you know, alcohol dependence. I, I was just, I was losing some of the best parts of me. I just, I, I didn't care as much. I didn't seek as much. I, you know, I wasn't looking as much. And when I did look, I, I just didn't see anything that excited me. And I think, you know, there was a lot of my senses were just dulled and numb. But, but also I think my, you know, my, what I would call my spirit, the, the thing that had sort of always been me, it was also being numbed. I was just moving farther and farther away from it. And in getting sober, I'm, you know, I'm getting, I'm getting back in touch with that now. And again, writing has been a way to do that. Uh, you know, one of the things that, that I would also say is that I don't know if it's, it's the writing as much as it's been the learning to write. Kind of like with, um, you know, I also started playing guitar and some other stringed instruments when I was newly sober, just to have something to do, uh, just to, just to have some things to do instead of thinking about not being able to drink when I wanted to. And, and I think, I, I know it's been true for me with music and I suspect it's been true with writing. But it's for me, I think it's been more about the learning to write poetry, learning to play music has been more important than the the playing music 
uh, you know, that's important to me, but you know, there's, I don't think that we talk enough about creativity in recovery and, you know, creativity could be how you cook, you know, how you doodle, you know, how you journal, um, playing music. But, I, but I think learning to do something that I didn't know how to do before that now, because I was sober, I had the opportunity to do and I had the persistence to do. And it is calming, isn't it? It's kind of meditative. Yeah, it is. To learn something yeah. new. And, and, you know, and I play a couple of kinds of guitar. I play mandolin. I play banjo. And this month it might be guitar. Next month it might be mandolin. I keep them handy. I play about an hour every day. And I usually play something that I remember playing, you know, some chord progression. And then I, I let myself learn to play something, you know, some new scale. Did you not play music before your recovery? No, I had tried to play guitar about 20 years before, and I gave up after two weeks because it was just too damn hard. Oh, yeah, it's difficult. (laughs) It's really difficult. And they say it's harder the older that we get to learn an instrument. Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I took some lessons because I think the other thing sober I've learned how to do is ask for help. And, and that was, that was useful. It was also incredibly humbling. Uh, playing music was much more humbling than, uh, than learning to write poetry because I kept having this, you know, monkey mind voice in my head that was like, you really suck. Uh, and, and truth be known, I kind of did. Uh, but, you know, now I think where I feel the most freedom is I just enjoy learning to play. I don't worry about being technically proficient, uh, but uh, I just love learning to play, you know, learning to play a new style. And, and so, you know, I, I, when I share with groups, I go to uh, a couple of different uh, inpatient and intensive outpatient recovery programs and tell my story. And I, you know, I right up front talk about how important, tapping into creativity has been has been for me. I think it's essential for me. I well I work in accounting which discourages <laughs> creativity. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so right. I need something. I need some outlet. So, you know, I I enjoy writing and I do write mostly for myself. Some every once in a while I'll publish something, but a lot of my writing isn't that good and and usually my writing is kind of emotional. But the podcast has been something uh, that I have been able to kind of tap into my creative energies uh, because I knew nothing about podcasting before I did this. I knew absolutely nothing how to do a podcast. I had to learn everything from ground up and I'm still learning and I enjoy it. And I, I enjoy the process of learning how to listen to people and carry on a conversation and, and then how to do the editing and then how to, you know, all of that. It's just, it's just, I really, really enjoy it. And it's uh well, uh, it allows me to learn, connect with other people, to relax. It's just, it's just a nice outlet, you know. Yeah, and it, and it's something that you know you you share, and it's you know, and I suspect that you have likely inspired other people to create podcasts in you know the recovery communities that you know that they live and work in. I I mean I know we. Uh, let's say about two and a half years ago, 
at Fitchburg, uh, a group of three of us just felt like we needed to help start a we Gnostics meeting, a free thinkers meeting. And part of that was because two of us were going to outpatient programs and inpatient programs, and we would see people from those programs come to then the AA meetings and then leave and, and leave still desperate for help. Cause, you know, I sat in one of those chairs. I almost left because I couldn't see myself anywhere in the steps. And yet I was just desperate to, to stay sober. And, you know, and we, we started a meeting and, uh, I just left that earlier this morning. I think there were, you know, 20 plus people there. And the coolest thing about it is then two other people from that meeting have started other meetings in the Madison area. Fantastic. And it's like, this is a cool way to grow this. It is. It's totally grassroots. I love it. Yeah. And, and I think all of us have had the, uh, the intention and, and I think it's something I picked up on and, and threads from, uh, Beyond Belief, uh, site is, you know, we're, we're simply seeking to add another path right. through AA as opposed to something separate from AA. That's right. Cause I'm sure it's true for you given your longevity and sobriety, but you know, AA saved my life and it was traditional AA for the first, you know, eight years. Yeah. Same here. 25 years. I was going to traditional AA and it's kind of funny, you know, I've, my perspective on the program has certainly changed and the way that I view things and the steps and all of that has, has changed a lot. And when I, when I was first experiencing the shift in how I view the program, I would look back on my past experience and think, and I would, and wrongly so, I would say that was wrong or that was stupid or that was, you know, and now I say, no, that was who I was at that time. And I got a lot of good out of it. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it's just that something happened along the way where I started taking a different path, you know, but that was okay too, you know? Right. Yeah. So it's just like, you know, we, it's almost like, you know, now that I've, I'm looking back on 30 years and mm-hmm. God, it's almost like looking at three or four different people during that time, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I can't even say that the guy in 1988, I mean, that, that was me, I guess, but a totally different me. Right. Even the guy, the me of, 12 years ago or whatever, you know, so, yeah. and I, I hope it stays that way. I, I like the idea that, that I'm open to change, that I'm open to new ideas. I, I, I love learning. Um, and I think that in a way, my atheism has kind of helped me with that. Um, mm-hmm. because over the last, you know, five years or so, it's, it seems that I'm more open to, new information and I've been I've continuing to develop with my understanding of the program. Um and sometimes I go to extremes and I come back, you know. I'm still in an in, in a process of evolution, I guess, um, as an atheist in AA. And I enjoy it. I love it. It makes it mm-hmm. it's exciting, you know. Yeah. Well and and I know for me, you know, it I think my early period there was a lot of um militant atheism. I mean, I was that guy in, <laughs> in the meeting. And then I think that began to soften. And I, I really started focusing on just 
well, and I'm hesitant to say this, but being begrudgingly tolerant. Yeah. Uh, and and then I began to realize that you know I was being as dogmatic as the people I was accusing of being <laughs> dogmatic. Right. And you know, and now I I I think I'm just more at peace with who I am and who I am in a meeting. I listen differently, and it you know, and it's just become. Uh, I've, I've got a bigger vocabulary than I had initially. I, I think that's that's another part of it. And the nice thing is that my home group, even though it's traditional AA, it's pretty eclectic. And so it's pretty common to hear references to uh, the four agreements, you know. And what I found is I tried, as I began to find a path through the steps, Sometimes I would tap into the four agreements and that would be the way I would do a third step is I would just be, uh, I wouldn't make assumptions. Uh, I wouldn't take things personally. I'd be honest and I'd do my best. And that was a, that was a perfectly reasonable and effective way for me to do the third step. At one point, I began to realize that I was beginning to be Buddhist rather than know about Buddhism, uh, because, you know, the, there's, there's a lot in Buddhism that I bring into recovery. And, uh, you know, and, and part of that was being, being intentional to follow an eightfold path. I found that to be, you know, a great way to address several of the steps. And, you know, and this is all stuff that prior to recovery, I had read and read and read mm-hmm. and I could, I could parrot it, but I didn't know how to live it. And, and I think in, in recovery, I've begun to, to learn how to live those things. You know, you were talking about the Eightfold Path and it reminded me of a podcast I did with a friend from Kansas City who helped get a refuge recovery meeting going here. Um, he's an atheist and he, and he had a really hard time getting sober in traditional AA and he started coming to our, our We Agnostics meeting, got, uh, sobriety. Um, and then he kind of helped this refuge recovery, uh, group get started. So I had this I had a podcast with him because I wanted to learn about refuge recovery and I read the book and everything. And I was really amazed at the similarities of the Eightfold Path and refuge recovery and the process that we go through with the steps. But he was also helping me see some of the differences. And one of the differences that I found really interesting was that how, you know, in AA, we do like this linear progression through the steps. Mm-hmm. Whereas with the Eightfold Path, it's like, this is a, these are things that we experience and do simultaneously. Right. And I thought Correct. that was really interesting, yeah. you know, and it's like, yeah, you know, a lot of the steps are that way too, actually. Right. You know, how we actually experience them, they are less linear anyway, I think. Yeah. Well, and, and in one of my early meetings, and it, it was a step meeting, and, uh, and I think it was about step six, and I claimed that I didn't think I was defective, that, you know, I had character tendencies, mm-hmm. uh, but that, you know, my sensitivity wasn't a defect. Sometimes it did mean I took things personally, but other times it meant I could really show empathy and compassion. And somebody asked me in a, you know, on a crosstalk, uh, that wasn't veiled at all, mm-hmm. uh, what, what step I was on. And I was like, well, my sponsor and I are talking about step two. 
And then he said, you know, well, the steps are in order for a reason. And so don't start doing step six and until you're there. Uh-huh. And I was like, okay, that kind of pisses me <laughs> off. But, but I, you know, I think the other, again, tapping back into sort of frameworks that I have as an ecologist is I don't see things linearly. You know, I tend to see food webs and, uh, and things that happen across time and space. And so, yeah, that living, living an eightfold path simultaneously is, it has been really useful for me. You know, I think the first person that really brought the eightfold path, well, there were two people. One, my, my sponsor, who is a former priest, but yet I absolutely knew he was just the right guy for me. When I did my first fifth step, he suggested that six and seven would be straightforward since I had an eightfold path. And it's like, oh, maybe I should read more about the eightfold path again. But the other was uh, Kevin Griffin, uh, One Breath at a Time, Buddhism and the Twelve Steps. I read that when I was about two months sober, and that was a lifesaver for me because it it showed me a path through the steps that were that felt like it was going to be true to who I thought I was. Uh, whereas before, I was just like, I don't think I can do these. But I think I need to, I think I need the structure, you know, that rigidity that we talked about early in sobriety. I needed structure and it needed to be really clear and simple. And that book was a real turning point for me. I'll have to check that out. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that you, um, reached out to us and let me know about your poetry. And I got to read some of that on Facebook. And we really would love to start posting that on a regular basis at AA Beyond Belief Mm -hmm. and um, share that with the rest of the community. It's something that we've really been wanting to do for a long time. And to, and this is just amazing that that this body of work that you have. And we'd just be so grateful if you would allow us to, to post that on a regular basis. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Old stuff and new stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just, it'd be a lot of fun, you know, just every Wednesday to post some poems and um, mm-hmm. maybe on Sundays occasionally. And just, it's just, you know, it was, it was always our intention with AA Beyond Belief to have a medium for people to express their recovery through their own talents, through their own, um, whatever medium that would be, whether it be video, music, poetry, essays whatever. And um, so this is a great way of letting people know that, you know, this is another way of communicating your recovery. So thank yeah. you so much for sharing that. That's just really, yeah. really well, thank wonderful. You. Yeah. And thank you for appearing on this podcast. Um, and I'm really looking forward to getting to know you through your work and that we stay in touch online uh, through our Facebook mm-hmm. group and and uh, one of these days too, I will have to make another trip to Wisconsin. That'd be great. Are you going, by the way, to Toronto for uh, the ICSA? I am not. I've got some family things, uh, but we have we have several people from the the Fitchburg group that are carpooling. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, because that probably isn't that bad of a drive for you, is it? No. Okay. Yeah, we're driving actually from Kansas City, me and my wife, and it's going to be like a sixteen-hour drive, I think. It's mm-hmm. so we're going to break it up in a couple of days, but we're we're I'm taking two weeks off work. And I'm just really looking forward to it, just to kind of get away. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Take care.
That concludes another episode of AA Beyond Belief, the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Hey, if you would like to join the secret Facebook group that was mentioned in this podcast, uh, just send me an email at john at aabeyondbelief.org. You will need to add me as a friend, and that will allow me to put you into the group. Thanks again, everybody. Peace to all.